This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Shelby Oakley. Shelby is a director uh, with the Contracting and National Security Acquisition Team at the Government Accountability Office. And Shelby, welcome back to the show. I appreciate you having me back, Roger. Hey, that first time you came on the show was so outstanding and your discussion with the discussion we had about <laughs> uh, DOD system, you know, uh, programs and what was going on there was great. So I, uh, I thought it would be great to have you come back and talk about you know, one of the other primary areas of responsibility, and that's the VA. But uh, before we get to that, I mean, it's always good to just revisit some fundamental things. And so if, if could you talk a little bit about, you know, the role of the government accountability office, what its function does, and it's a legislative uh, branch organization and you spend all your time looking at what the executive branch is up to. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. GAO is uh, an independent agency um, and we uh, provide Congress and the heads of the executive branch agencies with public and very timely um, fact-based information about government programs. And we, we endeavor to help the government improve and save taxpayer dollars. And, and we have kind of shown our worth over the years where we, you know, save the government billions and billions of dollars through the recommendations that we make that agencies implement um, that lead to greater efficiency and effectiveness. And so we can do our work anywhere the federal dollar is spent. Um, and so GAO has very broad reach and very broad access authorities, which I think is the key to how we can do such great, thorough, in-depth and fact-based work. Yeah. And when you go into a new fiscal year, let's say, or whatever, and you're planning what you're going to be working on, is it, you know, is it generated internally saying, hey, well, there's these ongoing programs are part of our mission to review them? Do you get requests from committees on the Hill? What yeah. sort of drives, you know, your sort of a, you know, management agenda or oversight agenda for a calendar year for what projects you take yeah. on or not take on? Absolutely. So we have a strategic plan, um, obviously, like most organizations do, that drives really our areas of focus that each of our broad teams, like mine, the contracting and national security acquisitions team focuses on for, um, you know, any given time period. And so as a part of that, that's really what underpins kind of our different focus areas within the organization. And then myself as a director, um, you know, with VA acquisition management being, you know, under my purview, it's my portfolio, I'm really responsible for executing work under that portfolio that would help VA, you know, move forward in those areas. And so really uh, what we do is we work with the Congress to talk to them about the things that, you know, we see as key issues. And it's really a two-way conversation um, between us about the types of work that we should be doing, the reviews that we should be t undertaking, and how they would contribute to moving the needle forward within this 
for example, VA acquisition management area. And so VA, in the VA acquisition management area, most of the work that we get comes from congressional requests. And so Congress sends us, you know, a letter that basically says, we want you to look at this and, you know, we would appreciate you letting us know if you can do that. And so we, you know, we respond to them and we give them a sense of how we could look at the issue, how we could approach it um, from a fair and balanced perspective. And the important thing about the, the VA acquisition work is that most of our work comes from the four corners. We get uh, minority, majority, House and Senate uh, requesters on almost all of our work. And I think that's really important. It says a lot about the focus of oversight for the Congress on VA acquisition management. In my other world and the DOD uh, weapons acquisition arena, um, most of our work comes from congressional mandates. And that's largely because you know, there's a national defense authorization passed every year, and that's an easy, easy venue for that to occur, whereas other organizations don't have an authorization every year. Yeah. And so can you talk? I mean, it's because I've been in the government <laughs> and, you know, being interviewed by GAO folks on a, about a program when I was at GSA. And I've been involved in responses from GSA to you know, a set of findings and recommendations and what the agency's view of it and whether they agree or are going to take certain actions. And then I've also been out here, like interviewed in the context of how you guys talk to all kinds of different stakeholders to try to get that sort of fair and balanced and, you know, holistic, you know, view of things. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you set it up a little bit, just in terms of when you, okay, okay, you've got, so you've been given a task, like, yeah, how many folks on your team, and do you, do you then try to identify all the stakeholders? Just what's a quick process? Because I find it fascinating stuff, just the process of how you execute on something like this. Oh, that's a great question. I've never been asked this in an interview, and I really appreciate it because it's a very rigorous process that we go through. So we get, you know, a request in or a mandate in that has, you know, proposed audit objectives that say we want you to look at these questions, right? And so. We then staff a team. So myself and my other colleagues who are directors and our managing director go through a, a process where we identify the types of people that we need on the engagement, who would be good to support this engagement. And so we then staff a team with an assistant director and then an analyst in charge who really runs the show with regard to executing the audit and then various different staff members. And so we'll get those questions in, and those questions will then drive initial background research and, you know, data collection for us to really develop a good understanding of the issues that then we use to develop our scope of methodology. And so that then provides us that those initial steps then provide us with a, okay, based upon what we know and what we've learned, here's how we think we should approach this audit. Here's the tools, techniques you know, approaches we should we should take to this review. And so we go through a series of internal meetings uh, within GAO where we get everybody to kind of take a look at that approach and, and make sure that we're identifying the right documents, the right people to talk to, the right stakeholders and whatnot to be able to execute the methodology credibly. And so GAO has in our organization, you know, we have our audit teams that are made up of analysts but we are also supported by a number of different experts. We have lawyers, economists, 
um, yeah. you know, technologists, scientists, everybody that you can imagine under the sun um, works at GAO and can contribute to the development of our methodology and the execution of it. And so then we, you know, get with the agencies and we start kind of telling them what we're going to do and asking them questions and let the agency point us in certain directions of documents and people and what not to be able to collect and, and analyze. Um, and so really that's how it gets underway. And then based upon that initial work, we refine those objectives. We refine the questions that we're looking at. Like maybe we get underway and we realize, oh, they're asking us for data on something, but we've begun to dig and the data is really bad. So we're not going to report on bad data, right? We're not going to, you know, write an audit, sure. audit objective that's based upon bad data. And so we will then kind of shift focus at that point to be able to do something that is executable and provides valuable information. So that's it at a high level. I hope that helped. Yeah. And just from my experience, I think it's an important part of is what I recall is when you do go in and introduce sort of yourselves to the agency and say, oh, here, we're from GAO, we're here to help you, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and just, you know, and try to and talk about the scope of it and just, I mean, that's that opening, you know, I think um, meeting or when you, when you, in, you know, start a process with an agency, it seems to me that's got to be, that's a critical stage where you're framing things for the folks you're going to be taking a look at and how you go about that, I think. Yeah. What I my experience was is a question of trust, right? You develop trust and say, here, here we're going to look at things. You may not end up agreeing at the end of the day, right? With with everything, at least yeah. that was our experience. But you know that the understanding that it's that it, this is in a certain sense part of the business we've all chosen. If you were if you're a public servant, that um, <laughs> you know, you know, it's I mean, it's it's appropriate, right? It's taxpayer dollars. It's that yeah. sort of thing. So yeah, I, I mean, think you just, hit the nail on the head with trust. I mean, right. that's a huge that's a huge part of it, right? Is kind of establishing that credibility and trust right out of the gate. Um, really helps in in executing that audit. Um, and, you know, it enables us to have those conversations, like you said, you know, I always go into these, um, at the end of the engagement, we have what's called an exit conference, where we present yep. what's called a statement of facts. And um, I always say, you know, we, we don't have to agree on the conclusions, but we have to agree on the facts, right? Because the facts right. aren't open to interpretation, you know, so that's, that's where right. we stand. And as long as we can get there, then, um, you know, it's a, it's sometimes a case of we can agree to disagree what those facts mean, <laughs> which right. happens sometimes. Yeah. And I, I, I always felt there's a reasonableness factor to it too, is that the folks I always dealt with at J.A. were, you know, were open to listening, right. And always reasonable in their approach and were sort of willing to, to learn and understand in a way that, that does, it doesn't, bring any preconceived notions to the job. I think that's important to doing a good job, like a, a job like yours. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think I work with some of the most intellectually curious and, you know, intelligent people um, in the government because these folks can walk into situations and just ask good questions, recognize, you know, what they have to learn and continue to build knowledge. And really that's kind of the process we go through on, on each engagement. And it's one of the reasons why it's a great place to work um, yeah. is that kind of continuous uh, learning and knowledge uh, building that we right. go through in every job. 
Right. And it's important work. It's definitely a work that's, you know, truly part of building public trust in my view. So, and you know what, when we come back, we'll talk about some of that important work um, and take a look at VA acquisition management and some of the work that you've done um, and your team has done over over the years and where things stand there. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. She's director of with the contracting and national security acquisitions team at the government accountability office. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network. Welcome back to off the shelf on federal news network. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. She's the director uh, with the contracting national security acquisitions team at the government accountability office. Shelby, um, we talked the first segment about the process and the function and, and just what you do and what your team does and the role it plays in our, in our government. But one, I know one of the areas that you focus a lot on, cause we testified together um, and we've talked and the, you know, coalition's been interviewed in some situations on VA programs is the VA is VA acquisition management. And um, mm-hmm. I think in two, uh, March 2019, if I get the dates correct, it was placed on VA acquisition management was placed on the high risk list. And I'm familiar with that. I worked for GSA when GSA interagency contracting was placed on the high risk list. Can you talk a little bit about you know, the context around that and sort of what it means and maybe just a little bit about the VA mission and its procurement yeah. function? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, VA um, or GAO's high risk list is really our uh, means for identifying those areas within the federal government that are at highest risk of waste, fraud, abuse, or mismanagement, and that they would have a significant effect on, you know, the federal government and its operations. And so VA acquisition management and how that fits into there is that, you know, VA serves this critical function, obviously, right, to serve those who have served and their family members. And so how VA does this is through acquisitions, through acquiring goods and services, anything from, you know, medical supplies to IT platforms that manage cemetery operations or, you know, make appointments. And so VA really has over the past, Um, I think the data is since 2012, VA's contracting obligations, the amount of money that it puts towards acquisitions has doubled. It's now it sits at about $34.4 billion. And so when you look at that significant of an acquisition function within the federal government, it really begins to um, kind of take on new importance. And so given the the work that GAO has done um, since, you know, really since 2014, we, we began kind of focusing on these acquisition-related issues within VA with, with significance. We determined that the things that we were seeing really showed us an organization that, um, you know, from an organizational perspective, hadn't really caught up to the spending that it had been doing on contracts and on contracts for services and, and products. And so, you know, we began a body of work at that time to really begin to look at some of the key issues uh, that VA faces in its acquisition management function. And we've done a lot of reports over the years and made a lot of recommendations to VA and, you know, are kind of continuing down that path. You know, I guess we've looked at, you know, interagency agreements and VA's use of FFRDCs. We've done kind of a high-level overview of VA procurement. Um, 
We've looked at the MSPV program, the Medical Surgical Prime Vendor program, a few times. We've looked at VA's implementation of its of the Veterans First preferences, which I'm sure your listeners are well aware of. Right. You know, the Federal Supply Schedule program. You know, most recently we've done work looking at um, VA's response to COVID-19, procurement response to COVID-19. So, we've kind of done an array of work thus far, even in that limited um, time frame, and, and, and have been able to make a lot of recommendations and, and CVA make some change in response. Yeah, the body of work and the, the scope of what we've done in, look, in terms of looking at the VA is quite remarkable because you, you touched on all those things that, you know, I think touch the private sector contractors who support the VA and in turn mm-hmm. support uh, veterans. What I might do is just ask you about some of the different areas, like compartmentalize some of the functions and management frameworks, because I know you've, in the context of looking at different programs, I think there's some commonality of of different things that that Mm -hmm. you all observed. And I think some of them have have been addressed by VA or they're in the process of being addressed. And the first one I want to ask you is just sort of the leadership structure. I think there were a number of uh, vacancies over the years, but now, at least in terms of the cadence and folks that you know we deal with, that seems to be they've there is greater some greater stability there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, leadership stability is one of the key areas that we have found across the work that we have done, and I think importantly, it's not just leadership stability for leadership stability's sake. It's leadership stability that is needed during times of great change, right? And so when you're talking about some of the big things that VA has done or, or has had to contend with over the past couple of years, things like, you know, the Kingdomware Supreme Court decision or the transition from, you know, the, the FSS-based, federal supply schedule-based MSPB program to the, you know, VA's own, you know, catalog for MSPB and those types of things. I think leadership stability kind of takes on new meaning um, because if you don't have that person at the top guiding and providing direction and holding people accountable for making the types of changes that are necessary to move forward, you know, you're going to see challenges. And that's exactly what we've seen in, in all of those programs. And, you know, we initially, I think it was in 2017, we did a report that kind of identified, um, you know, the fact that you know, the law requires the chief acquisition officer for um, an organization like VA to be a permanent political appointee, right? And so VA had never had that. It had been years, and it had been a series of interim CAOs in place. And, you know, the ability to be effective in that regard, I think, was pretty challenging. And so we made some recommendations related to that. And, you know, since then, VA has, has had, you know, political chief acquisition officers in place. Um, you know, there have been two since we made that recommendation with the change of right. administration, but I think that really helped. But, you know, one thing I will say is, you know, VA is a bit challenged by its organizational structure. You know, you have the VA headquarters folks within the Office of Acquisition, Logistics, and Contracting that are intended to oversee, you know, acquisition writ large within uh, VA. But then each of the organizations, each of the administrations 
have their own acquisition function. And so it leads to a bit of um, challenge in that relationship and, and challenge in kind of effectively making change VA wide to move forward in certain areas. And so that's definitely one area where, where we're seeing a little bit of progress, but I think there's more to be done. Yeah, it's, it is a, um, you know, and, I, and because I can analogize it to GSA a little bit, the challenging sort of structure where, you know, the lines of authority, and they can make it harder to managing and supporting the acquisition workforce. And that's just historical structural impediments may not be the right word, but just realities mm-hmm. of the VA that I think they're looking to try to address moving forward. Um, but part and parcel of that too is um, sort of the, uh, you know, the VA's own regulations. And I think you have done some work on their acquisition regulations and made some observations there. Yeah. You know, so we did some work looking at kind of the VA's um, acquisition supplement, you know, their supplement to the FAR. And we found that it they were really sorely outdated. You know, uh, not much updating had been done since 2008 um, when, we, when we took our look in 2017. And, you know, there was a lot of confusion about those policies. There were multiple different versions and, you know, some parts were updated, other parts weren't. And so, well, we identified that as a, as a key issue and a challenge um, to the workforce in, in executing its acquisition responsibilities. And so VA has taken a lot of action in this regard. And in fact, they just finished the wholesale updating of the VAR recently, and, yeah. and we're moving to close that recommendation. Right. Uh, Angela Billups, who's, I think, heading up that effort, has done you know, some great work in moving that forward. Um, but you know yeah. what? We're already up on the break. So, I, I, you know, when we um, when we come back, I want to uh, you know talk a little bit more about the management structure or the challenges that the leadership has, given the historical you know sort of structure of the VA, and then maybe turn like one of the interesting things as a former FSS guys talk a little bit about the VA FSS program and some of the work, some of the things you've seen there, and the interesting dynamic okay. where. The VA has moved sort of from the FSS program as the foundation for their prime vendor program in the, historically in the past to now, you know, the VHA doing the BPAs and, you know, and, and establishing those as the source of supply for the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the prime vendor distributors. But my guest today okay. is Shelby Oakley. She is a director in the Contracting National Security Acquisitions Team at the Government Accountability Office. I'm Raj Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. She is a director in contracting national security acquisitions team at the Government Accountability Office. One of Shelby's primary areas of focus in her work is VA acquisition management, and that's what we're talking about today. And, you know, Shelby, we're talking in the last segment about updating the regulations and, you know, the work that is done there in OLAC at the VA and the leadership structure. And the thing you touched on that I, I think is from a historical perspective, something that the VA, you know, I don't know what the answer is, whether it's consolidation of the acquisition workforce, but they do, you know, whether it's the VHA and its own acquisition workforce, you have the NAC, National Acquisition Center, in Chicago that runs the schedules and national IDIQ contracts. 
and host other things. And then you've got the Strategic Acquisition Center, and then you've got the TAC, Technology Acquisition Center in New Jersey, all these different functions. And it's like their own ships in the night in a certain sense. And whether there's any way that the VA could figure out how to potentially either bring them together or create the lines of authority or communication where they could sort of act more in concert. Is that something you guys have looked at? And we haven't done any like real work um, looking at kind of their organizational structure, but I think the way you laid it out is exactly right. You know, you have this overarching body, OALC, that's responsible for overseeing VA's acquisition function per the federal acquisition regulations, and it has its own bodies within it, like um, OPAL, which is what the Office of Procurement um, Acquisition and Logistics that contain the NACSAC and TAC. Mm-hmm. But then you have each of these operating administrations that have their own procurement functions, like DHA has PLNO. And then, you know, other headquarters offices like OIT have, <laughs> you know, their own functions. And I think it leads to a very interesting dynamic in terms of lines of authority and accountability. And it makes change challenging. And so, you know, Partly what you see within VA is a lot of really good efforts coming out of OALC and where we're going to need to um, see progress is the extent to which they're able to work effectively with these other administrations and organizations to get them to, you know, move in the same direction that OALC is trying to go. And I think it's a key challenge and I wish I had um, the solution for VA, but I, you know, I just don't yet in that regard, but I think it's one of the things that, you know, OALC recognizes and is thinking about as it, you know, for example, is doing some of the things it's doing right now with its, you know, supply chain um, modernization. So um, it's a big issue. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think part of the reasons that OLAC is sort of moving forward on these things is that to an earlier observation about the leadership, they have a lot of Uh, folks in place in some of these key positions right now Mm -hmm. that are doing very good work, you know, and I think it's also your made a, Gio made a critical point, you know, whether it was Karen Brazell before or Mike Parrish now having that chief acquisition officer, a political, um, you know, that creates a gravitas to the whole acquisition process, right? That I think a lot Mm -hmm. of agencies, people forget about, but actually procurement's fundamental to, you know, the effective operation of, of all these government entities, because you can't do it without, Absolutely. you know, the IT or, you know, everything you do in, as an organization to function, you acquire it somewhere, right, um, to support the people yeah. in the mission. So, you know, I think there's positive there. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you about and sort of turn to a little bit is because, again, an old FSS hand here. Um, I know you've done some work on the VA FSS back in 2020 uh, report and just, you know, and the, and the sort of the change in the role of the FSS where it used to be the backbone of, you know, the MedSurge sort of prime vendor program, you know, the early part of this century, let's say, you know, um, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. still the back, it is still the backbone for the pharmaceutical prime vendor program. And it seems to work quite well there. Uh, but it's, it's, sort of lost its way in a certain sense in some in some way or manner uh, on the med search side and been you know with the vha doing its own bpas can you talk a little about what you found and what what are some of the challenges and opportunities for fss 
BAFSS. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head, right? FSS kind of went through a fundamental shifting uh, when VA decided to move to MSPB and its own kind of approach uh, for that outside of FSS. And I think, you know, the, the thing that was driving that at that time and that we reported on were these goals that VA had of, um, you know, cost savings, greater efficiency, clinical standardization, all those kinds of goals were driving them to move away from FSS, which had hundreds of thousands of offerings, um, to uh, a more limited catalog uh, with MSPB. Um, and so when that happened, you know, we've obviously reported on, you know, the, the um, challenges <laughs> that the MSPB program faced, but we have also reported on that, you know, FSS at that time was really leaderless as well as it's going through this kind of fundamental shift of like, wait, now we're not being used the same way we were being used before. We also have to deal with the, these new kingdomware or, you know, veterans first requirements. And there was nobody in charge. It was a rotating group of folks in charge of FSS at that time. And I think, you know, you really saw um, a lot of challenges in that program during that time and, and you strained a little bit. But, you know, there, what we saw, again, was like a lot of delays um, in getting contracts awarded, backlogs, really uh, not so great working relationship with GSA, which I also think was exacerbated by not having leadership in place at FSS. And, and so it resulted in big challenges for the FSS program. And, you know, we made a number of recommendations to the FSS program, one of which was to you know, work on that relationship with GSA, and, and they now have. There's a new MOU in place between VA and GSA that hopefully will improve that relationship. But there's also other areas that need to be focused on, right? And, you know, one of the biggest problems is that offer intake process. It just takes so long to get contracts awarded, sometimes up to a year, and, you know, that's frustrating, obviously, to suppliers, and it's challenging for VA in that regard. And so one of the areas that we think VA can still continue to make progress on is, you know, putting in place more of a, an electronic kind of offer intake system like GSA has that will bring more efficiency to that program. And then, you know, just to kind of comment on the future of F FSS, it really you know, depends on what happens with MSPV and what VA's decisions are in that regard. And if they continue to move away from FSS, you know, there might be a different, you know, role to play. And that's why having that leadership in place is, is going to be so very important. Right. So just a couple sort of observations. I think, you know, one of the intents of the, of the you know, I guess, renewed sort of working relationship with GSA, between GSA and VA is to VA to be able to leverage some of GSA's electronic capabilities for that offer mm -hmm. intake and that sort of thing. And I think that's a good, very good thing, a great opportunity for VA leadership. The other thing, I guess, you know, to piggyback on that, and I, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but there's a complete, there's different sets of rules between GSA schedules and the VA schedules in terms of mm -hmm. how you even process an offer, you know, different, you know, approaches to the audit process fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do think it's, uh, you know, it's a more streamlined process at GSA. GSA could still be improved, but have you all looked at that difference and whether it makes any sense these days or not? 
We haven't looked at that specifically, but that exact point that you're raising is why we thought it was important for VA and GSA to kind of have that regular relation, that good relationship and that regular communication, because, you know, there's not going to be any change unless somebody identifies where there's, you know, needed change. Um, and so with VA and GSA communicating more regularly and more frequently and sharing, you know, experiences and lessons learned and, and practices, hopefully, you know, anywhere where those kind of differences or inconsistencies are apparent that can possibly be changed, VA could take steps to work with the, to make that happen. Um, and so that's why we think it's, it's super important. But no, we didn't like dig specifically into what those changes are and how they affect VA's efficiency. Yeah, but that's a good good point that, you know, working more closely with GSA gives them the opportunity to work together to look at that potentially moving forward. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we're mm-hmm. up on the break. Shelby, when we come back, we one last segment. I want to, you know, talk a little bit about supply chain modernization. And then I might throw a few, you know, uh, key concepts at you and get your reaction to them in the context of uh, VA acquisition management. So my guest today is okay. Shelby Oakley. She is the director with the Contracting National Security Acquisitions Team at the Government Accountability Office. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Shelby Oakley. She's a director with the Contracting and National Security Acquisitions Team at the Government Accountability Office. We're talking about VA acquisition management. And, you know, I know, you know, you've done, not you, but maybe you did all of them. I know there's like 12 different reports I counted maybe since 2015 on all these areas. And you did Mm -hmm. mention early in the show, all these different things you guys have looked at over time. Um, And I guess maybe in a certain sense, there's a, some, a lot of it up, um, you testified on the Hill back in November of last year and focusing on the challenges with uh, supply chain modernization at the VA. And I just want to get your sort of your, 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 you know, snapshot of, you know, fundamentally where they are and what, what you're looking to see them address perhaps. And then we can talk about some of the key other key concepts uh, that you guys have looked at just to get a, play a word game with yours, something like that. So Okay. That sounds great. Um, yeah, so supply chain modernization. Uh, what you know, when we did some work on this um over the past year, uh we definitely found um a lot of challenges and, and those challenges were, you know, highlighted by COVID, but they were existing long before um you know, COVID came around and, and what what we the conclusion that we came to is that there's many different supply chains within VA, um, and each has its challenges. And it was it's difficult from an external observer perspective, and even from people that work within the organization, to understand how those how that um, those various different um, efforts and initiatives work together um, to you know have VA put in place a comprehensive supply chain, um, and so. You know, based upon um, a lot of that uh, that work that we have done, we made a recommendation that VA take on a comprehensive supply chain management strategy. Um, and we are certainly encouraged that VA has begun work in this regard. And 
you know, we continue to get briefs, as I'm sure you and, and your folks do, on, you know, VA's progress in this regard. And, um, you know, the, the, the chief acquisition officer is leading the way, um, and we, we see um, the various steps that they're taking to get to development of a strategy that then would be able to be kind of operationalized over the next several years. Um, and so I see that as very, very positive. Um, from my perspective, where the rubber's gonna, where the, you know, <laughs> where the rubber's gonna hit the road is whether implementation um, will follow through, right? How VA is gonna ensure that the approach that it takes to kind of transforming its broader supply chain will take hold within the organization, given that we're talking about many different supply chains across the organization, across those various administrations that we were talking about before, that would need to kind of function in concert with one another. Um, not to mention the IT challenges that underpin um, the whole the whole approach. And so, so uh, you know, we are encouraged of, by the steps that VA has taken, but again, you know, we wait to see what the actual outcome of it is and the decisions that VA makes over the next several months to um, begin to execute on its strategy. Yeah, it's um, well, Mike Parrish, the chief acquisition officer, and they've had a series of industry days. And I think it sort of highlights what you said. It's, a, you know, they have many different logistics systems and, you know, and sharing with the public the information about those systems and getting briefings, I think is a, positive step and in, in, in kind of starting to frame the development of the overall strategy, whether, you know, it, right. it's the systems of systems or how you're going to address moving forward from a strategic and comprehensive perspective. Um, you know, and we're, you know, I know industry is gratified to see those meetings and the fact that, you know, they were trying to get out and explain, these are all the moving parts of the VA. This is what we have to deal with. And, you know, we're seeking your help to try to figure it out. So but I think there's more to come on that. Mm -hmm. And like you said, looking forward yeah. to seeing what the progress is moving forward. Um, but there is a focus on it, and that's a very good thing. So, um, yeah. But I also wanted to ask you, like, some of the things you've looked at over the years and, did, yeah, um, like, yeah, and, and one of the things that I know Congress was concerned about is, and I'm just going to throw out different concepts and get your thoughts on them is at the VA's the role of clinical input and, you know, whether it's developing a approved products list or what they buy, because the VA is an interesting place. It's, you know, that, mm -hmm. you know, they use a lot of teaching hospitals and the, you know, surgeons from those hospitals. So it's, you know, there's a, there's standardization to save money, increase efficiency, but there's also, a great deal of variety across, you know, such a huge organization mm -hmm. and all the medical treatment facilities and the doctors that support them. They have to find that right balance. And, you know, right. and part of it is, you know, that sort of gatekeeper or the clinical input. Just, I know you guys looked at that some. Yeah, no, that was one of the key um, things that we looked at in our first review of the MSPV program. For example, we went out and talked to private hospital networks about how they go about, you know, developing their, their, you know, formulae, their catalogs, their supply catalog, their supply approach. And, and we definitely found that, you know, the key element is clinical input from the very beginning. Um, and, you know, starting from the ground up with that input, I think is 
um, super positive. And we made a lot of recommendations related to that, some of which have been overcome by events, given that, um, you know, the shift away from um, some of the initial goals of the MSPB program. But VA has continued to, you know, work in this area on its um, clinician-driven strategic sourcing approach. Um, and so, you know, they've been having these working groups where clinicians have been leading them and to develop the requirements, the supply requirements. Um, and they've been focusing on a few different product categories for sure. But this this stuff, this approach was a little paused um, during the COVID pandemic. But I think, you know, it's it's being refreshed and, and, and VA is going to continue to move out on that. And, you know, we'll just want to see how that then feeds into whatever the proposed, you know, MSPV, uh, what's Gen Z, I think it's called now, how that feeds into that and what supplies are available um, under that new program, whatever it is. Um, And these are sort of related. We touched on a little bit, but the overlap duplication FSS and then also, you know, uh, I think you've started looking a little bit at or have looked at some of, you know, the potential emerging like DLA, VAA, partnership or the in the pilots of demos there's two different two different concepts yeah so the overlap uh between fs fss and mstv was an issue that we raised during our review um of the fss program and you know we we identified a number of areas where there were similar offerings which you know seemed to make a little um um in some ways make sense given the different uh, purposes that FSS and MSPB were intended to serve, but it also in other ways it, it raises questions about efficiency and effectiveness. And so we made recommendations for VA to go ahead and take a look at that duplication and, and I, you know, make a case for why it's acceptable or not. And VA did that. Um, they went ahead and, and assessed duplication between FSS and MSPB and it found about 25% overlap um, in offerings. Um, but VA's, Contention is that this is really an acceptable level, um, given the two different uh, missions of the programs and, um, you know, that they don't think that this this amount of overlap warrants any change in strategy from either program. And so it's just something that I think as VA moves forward, it should keep an eye on when it decides um, what its next approach is. Um, so um, demos. DLA, VA, um, all those uh, wonderful, fun topics. Um, I mean, as you know, and probably your readers or listeners know, you know, Dimmel's um, and and the court decision on Dimmel's has been really a, a primary factor in delaying the DLA MSPB pilot. Um, and so, um, you know, I think because of that court case and, and the challenges that are presented uh, through it as well, um, you know, the CAO, as part of this um, supply chain management assessment, is reassessing demos. Um, and um, I think rightly so, given, you know, things that the IG has reported about how, you know, VA went into making the demos decision with information from its analysis of alternatives, that demos was not the preferred alternative and would not meet all the needs. Um, and so I think it's a really good um, time to take a take a reassessment of whether or not demos is the in fact the solution. Um, and so we'll see what the outcome of that is. It's tied to obviously that you know um, VA wide supply chain um, management um, 
strategy uh, that VA is undertaking right now. And, and I believe, uh, you know, we'll see some, you know, competitive prototyping at the end of the pro process that hopefully will enable VA to make good decisions about what's going to work for its particular needs um, right. and not just kind of uh, continue with a decision that was made a few years ago that maybe um, wasn't so supported. Right. So, and the last one uh, uh, before the wrap up the show, the, and it's real quick, just kind of the role of Vets, for, Vets First and Kingdomware and the impact and just what, to the extent you, you all have looked at how the VA goes about you know, implementing that and complying with the requirements. I know it's a big topic. Yeah, but if you I, have mean, a... <laughs> I can I can be quick. I think I could say you know this could that first continues to be a significant challenge for VA and figuring out how to implement it in a way that is going to be acceptable to all the parties kind of um, you know involved. Right. And so I think VA has done a great job recognizing you know what. Um, SB, VOSB firms can bring, um, but that, you know, how that kind of plays out through its various different strategies, I think, is yet to be determined and will obviously be challenged if it's not um, really well thought through um, and planned for, because that's what we've seen happen in the past. Right. It's all about balance, I think, at the end of the day, right? A lot. Yeah. That's life, right? That's a lot of life, too, right? So, but that was really yeah. good. You did that really. You, 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 you said you would do it and get it done quick, and you certainly did. So, yeah, great. I want to thank my guest today. I try. Yeah, you, you do more than try. Um, uh, I want to thank my guest today, Shelby Oakley. She's a director with the Contracting National Security Acquisitions Team at the Government Accountability Office. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.